Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the second season of Bad Gays, a podcast about evil and complicated gay men in history. I'm Ben Miller, a writer and researcher, and a member of the board of the Gay Museum in Berlin. And I'm Hugh Lemmy, a writer and author. And uh, we want to thank you so much for the overwhelming response to the first season. We thought we were making a show for the four other weirdos who cared about this stuff, and it turns out that there are thousands of us. So uh, that's been really wonderful to discover, and we're really excited to bring you another season of shows about evil gay men, complicated gay men, and philosophical disquisitions on the nature of badness itself. Um, So... I'm going to turn it over to Hugh to introduce our first subject for the season. Okay, our first subject for this season, I've got a little clue for you. Oh God, I don't like mysteries. Who does this remind you of? Bittersweet memories And I will always love you And I will always love you Obviously, but Whitney wasn't an evil gay man, so I'm a little bit confused. I didn't know I had such a great voice. Well. No, this isn't about Whitney herself, but about another gay icon who fell in love with his bodyguard. That is Alexander the Great. Oh, wow. Um, So Alexander the Great's a really interesting figure from history, and there were sort of prophecies around him from the moment he was born, or even before he was born, that said he was going to be destined for great things. And throughout his life, there are all these sort of symbolic prophecies about his um, his power and potential, which really drove him in uh, in his quests. Bitch me to the fuck. So, um, according to accounts at the time, on the night that Olympias, um, Alexander's mother, consummated her marriage to the Macedon king, Philip II, she was his fourth wife, um, Olympias fell asleep and had a dream that a thunderbolt descended from the sky and struck her womb, causing it to burst into flames. Later... <laughs> Yeah. Ow. Later, her new husband himself had a dream where he uh, sealed shut the womb of his wife, and on the seal was a lion. And Plutarch, who is the Greco-Roman biographer on whom we'll rely on for much of this episode, interpreted the dreams to suggest that Alexander was the son of Zeus, who impregnated Olympias with the thunderbolt. But either way, the life of Alexander was filled with such portentous events. And Alexander later did regard himself as the son of Zeus. You can see the comparisons here with our own biblical history, right? Yeah. I love Um, a modest queen. Yeah. So um, what we think of today as ancient Greece wasn't a single political unit. It was a series of city-states that were quite often at war with one another. And you might know about the Greek city-states such as Sparta and the Spartans, who we might be able to feature in future episodes, um, or the Athenians. But there were also others such as the Thebans, the Thracians, and in fact... Over the entire history of ancient Greece, there are about a thousand city-states. So it's wrong to think of Greeks, um, ancient Greeks possessing a unified empire in the way we might think of, say, the Romans. And these city-states sometimes had wildly differing ideologies and cultural forms. While the Greeks were pioneering democracy, quote-unquote, which was actually a very limited form based around a very limited concept of citizenship, the Spartans were a two-headed kingdom, for example. And while Rhodes was known for its development of maritime law and currency, the Athenians were known for their emphasis on art and education, while Spartans were known for their hellishly cruel and austere culture of military excellence and obedience. And Macedon was one of these uh, states. Macedon was was in the uh, the youth of Philip, who was Alexander's father. Macedon was a rather small kingdom within this political ecosystem. 
Philip was actually kept hostage in Thebes as a teenager during a period known as the Theban hegemony, where military reforms and the collapse of Spartan and Athenian power had left Thebes dominant on the peninsula. And while in Thebes, Philip, Alexander's father, was placed under the control of the Theban, Theban general Pamenes. I'm probably going to pronounce an awful lot wrong in this episode. I don't speak Greek, let alone ancient Greek. So The good news is that, unlike with German, neither do I, so I can't annoyingly yeah. pron- uh, correct your pronunciation. So anyway, he was, he was placed under the control of this Theban general P- Pamenes, uh, who, was, um, who was an advocate of the sacred band of Thebes. And that's Thebes. Um, the Sacred Band was a military unit of, of 300 elite soldiers, which was formed out of 150 male couples. Right? That's... We've already gotten... We're, what, two minutes into our first episode, and we've already gotten that gay? Have you ever seen um, The Birdcage? There's a great <laughs> yes. line in that where they're talking about gays in the military. Yeah, Talk about gays in the military. <laughs> Anyway, um, Pamenes was also said to be addicted to paederastia, which was an uh, ancient Greek sexual practice. This was a form of sanctioned homosexual relationship that was seen as a rite of passage for boys into adulthood, which began when they began their military training. In it, a young male um, who was called a eromenos, probably aged between 15 and 17, was partnered with an older male called an erastes, who was usually but not always about five or ten years older. And the ideal was that the older male would induct the younger one into military and social principles. But the relationship had a, a prescribed sexual element, which is within the names. Eromenes, or beloved, is the masculine form of the present passive participle from ero, meaning to love. While the suffix tes in erastes denotes active agency. Therefore, the older one was the active partner, for example, and the mm. uh, younger one was the what we perhaps these days call the bottom. I myself have been known to be a grammar top, so... <laughs> um, and the idea was that the older male, yeah, would therefore be dominant dominant sexual partner, although it wasn't actually um, anal or oral sex, which was seen as um, uh, degrading to the younger partner. Instead, it was what was called intracrural sex, which is um, between the thighs. Anyway, while Philip was in Thebes, he was actually the Eromenos to Pamenes, the Theban general. And as a result, Philip saw the power of military reforms that were being put through in Thebes. And so on acceding to the throne of Macedon in, 13, uh, in 359 BC, he began implementing his own reforms, not least the development of spear technology and the phalanx infantry corps. And so Philip had won a series of wars of conquest during the childhood and adolescence of his son Alexander. And as a result, he had subdued most of the peninsula. Philip was a really brutal conqueror. Um, he raised the city of Olynthus, which was a former ally, and he threatened his enemies with total destruction. He t- even turned his attention to Sparta, this gay military state, saying, quote, If I win this war, you will be slaves forever. And in another, another version, he warned, quote, You are advised to submit without further delay, for if I bring my army into your land, I will destroy your farms, slay your people, and raise your city. End quote. And the Spartans are supposed to have responded with a single word reply, if. <laughs> As a result, uh, Philip left the Spartans well alone. But he wasn't always uh, successful. And after failing to besiege Byzantium, his power was really waning. And so he formed the League of Corinth, which is sometimes known as the Hellenic League. Um, and as such, the city-states united in a pact not to fight each other and instead turned their attentions eastwards towards the Persians. 
Philip had wanted to capture cities uh, ruled by the Achaemenid Empire, apologies in advance, uh, which was on Asia Minor, which is sort of where modern-day Turkey is located. And as a result, Philip befriended a lot of Persian exiles into his court, so Alexander grew up surrounded by Persian influences. So this is Alexander's childhood. He's raised in a burgeoning kingdom with a very successful father, uh, with this mix of conquest and diplomacy as his model, and with this eye on unifying the Grecians and turning his eyes towards Asia. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple of other important factors in Alexander's youth that set the stage for his life, the first being his education. Now, we're all used to rich and powerful hiring private tutors to give their kids a head start in life. <clears throat> Alexander's parents were no different, so they set out trying to find a tutor for their young son. Um, they even considered the successor of Plato, who was called Speusippus, um, and he was the uh, he followed Plato in the role of the scholarch of the, acad- of the academy, the Greek academy. But in the end, they settled for Aristotle. Oh, you know, just a, a little step up in life. A I little love helping settling. hand to pass his, pass his A levels. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, <sighs> So Alexander was taught by Aristotle um, at the Temple of the Nymphs in Mieza, along with actually quite a lot of other sons of the aristocracy. And the atmosphere was said to be kind of like a an elite boarding school where future future rulers, the, the children of the aristocracy, were trained for power. And as we know from the UK, combining situational homosexuality with elite education and then giving those people unfettered political control over a country only leads to good things. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, Aristotle was um, teaching Alexander to develop an aggressive and almost genocidal approach towards this encroaching Persian power, saying he should be, quote, a leader to the Greeks and a despot to the barbarians, to look after the former as as after friends and relatives, and to deal with the latter as with beasts or plants, end quote. But he also taught him much more widely, and during this time, Alexander developed a a taste for um, Homer's epic poetry, these ancient sagas of conquest and heroism and fate, and especially for the Iliad, which is a book that he'd actually carry with him for the rest of his life on all his campaigns. When he was still a young man, he was seen to be a a prodigious leader, and there were more portentous signs of his future talent emerging. When he was about 12 years old, his father was offered this mighty horse by a dealer for 13 talents, which is around $200,000 in today's money. But Philip refused to pay because the horse was untamable. But Alexander offered to tame it himself and said that if he failed, he would pay the entire money. Anyway, he spoke to this horse calmly and he turned it to face the sun so the horse couldn't see its own shadow, which is supposedly what had been scaring him. And as a result, uh, as a result the horse was tamed and um, became close to Alexander and he kept this horse for his entire life. Um, the horse's entire life. Plutarch hmm. wrote that Philip declared, quote, O my son, look thee out a kingdom equal to and worthy of thyself, for Macedonia is too little for thee. Anyway, he named this horse Bucephalus, which means ox head, because he had this enormous ox's head on his horse. And he said to have ridden it yeah, for the rest of his life until the horse died on campaign when Alexander was 29 um, at the Battle of Hydaspes, which is in Pakistan today. Alexander then actually named a founded a city in honor of his horse named Alexandria Bucephalos, which is one of almost twenty cities that he founded and named after himself, <laughs> including Alexandria in Egypt. Um, As I said, I love a modest queen. It was also at school in Mies that Alexander probably first met another boy named, uh, I'll get this one right, Hephaestion. 
who would become his closest friend and bodyguard, quote-unquote close friends, just good friends. Oh, yes. And would later go on to be a second in command. Aristotle described the two men as, quote, one soul abiding in two bodies. Like regular listeners will know, we got into rocky ground when we sort of retroactively try and discern whether the men we're talking about were lovers or just good friends. So this is like a complicated complicated area by both lit- uh, by both contemporary and modern sources. You know, they, they argue about this a lot still. Part of the problem is people both now and at the time tend to look at their relationship through a, a lens of the Athenian city-states. So they were thinking of it in terms of this pederastia model. Um, which seems to suggest that if they were lovers, then it would probably be only for a short time in their youth, um, which is often how it's portrayed in cultural representations. However, the historian Robin Lane Fox writes, quotes, uh, writes that, quote, descendants of the Dorians were considered and even inspected, expected to be openly homosexual, especially among their ruling class, and the Macedonian kings had long insisted on their pure Dorian ancestry, end quote. So there's certainly lots of other implications that this wasn't just this uh, youthful form of uh, bonding into the military, but it actually it was a lifelong love affair. For example, Diogenes of Sinope, who um, actually wrote to Alexander at the time, saying he was, quote, ruled by Hephaestion's thighs, end quote. Oh, ho, ho. Um, yeah, and this is where I come in and do the historian disclaimer about using words like gay or homosexual to talk about uh, people in uh, 300 and something B.C., Never mind 200, 300 years ago. Um, and as we said a lot in the first season, and I'll say it again now if you're just joining us here, um, just like uh, the term bad, which we take a pretty flexible attitude toward, we also take a very flexible attitude towards the word gay. And so uh, while we're certainly not making the argument that Alexander the Great is um, only or purely apprehendable as gay in the way that we understand what gay means now, we think that looking at him through the kind of lens of gay can be interesting and illuminating and enlightening. Um, and then we can always keep in the back of our heads that all of these concepts have changed a lot over time and based on dominant means of production and dominant understandings of what sexuality means or even whether such a thing as sexuality exists. Yes. But just listen to this quote from A.R. Byrne in Alexander the Great in a Hellenistic Empire. Quote, The ancient writers tell of the peculiarly melting glance of his eyes, or the way in which, as Plutarch says, his body seems to glow. They are evidently trying to describe something which they found difficult to express. He also grew up to the delight of Philip, serious-minded, untiring, passionately keen to succeed in any difficult task, and yet more keen the more difficult it was. Yeah, the best little boy in the world. Yeah. Age 16, he graduated from the academy, and he began to fight as a military commander under his father, suppressing revolts while Philip seized Byzantium, um, which he failed to do. Together, they fought on campaign, uh, taking Athens and Thebes, although stopping short of Sparta, and this is when they formed the Hellenic League. When they returned, Philip married again, and then this became a big concern, because if he had a child of his new wife, that child would be fully Macedon, whereas Alexander's lineage was only half Macedon because of his mother. So he fled with his mother, but he returned six months later and then became embroiled in more shenanigans over the succession. There was a scandal. However, when he was 20, attending his sister's wedding to his uncle, don't ask, <laughs> uh, his, his father was there too, <coughs> to see his... yeah, And I'm my own grandpa. Yeah, to see his brother-in-law marry his daughter. <laughs> um, <laughs> at the wedding... His, I love families, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Um, 
at a wedding, his father was murdered by one of his own bodyguards. And the army and the nobles of Macedon immediately proclaimed Alexander the king on the, on the spot. Mm-hmm. So he was in power, but immediately he began a campaign of bloodshed against any and all potential rivals for the throne. He murdered anyone who might be a threat. Um, it's even said that his mother murdered his own sister, had her burnt alive. Oh, God. So following his father's death, then the city rose, states rose up in a rebellion against him. And rather than resorting to diplomacy, as had been suggested by his advisers, he mustered 3,000 cavalry and suppressed the city-states to the south before riding north and securing his northern frontier in the Balkans and then crossing even the Danube to the north. But while he was there, the south and the city-states rebelled again. And again, he encountered them with the Athenians backing down this time, but Thebes continued to put up a rebellion. He captured Thebes and he razed it to the ground. So while his father was more of a diplomat, Alexander definitely desired conquest. So he took up the campaign his father had started and decided he would conquer entirely the Persian Empire. In 334 BC, aged just 22, he crossed the Hellespont, which is the gap of water between Europe and Asia Minor. Uh, With a fleet of 120 ships carrying 38,000 crew members, 48,100 soldiers and 6,100 cavalry. Like all days, he was good at travelling light. <laughs> so this began his great campaign. Um, I'm not a military historian. You might be surprised to find out. Mm. So I'm going to rattle through his campaign victories quite a little. But if you imagine this, well, you can imagine, considering the distance he's travelling, the amount of fighting they must have been doing constantly um, in, in very populated countries, even at the time. So in modern day terms, in terms of modern day countries, Alexander managed to ride down through Syria and Lebanon, through Israel and Palestine, across the Sinai, and then conquer Egypt within about two years. Jesus. It was on this first part of the conquest um, that he visited Gordium, which was an ancient city just south of modern-day Ankara in Turkey. And it's there where Alexander is said to have unraveled the Gordian knot, that is now a a phrase, you know, for like a very tricky situation, Mm -hmm. Uh, which he did apparently by just slicing through of his sword, which wasn't against the rules. <clears throat> but it was prophes- it was prophesied there in this other sort of portentous forecast that whoever cut through the Gordian knot would conquer Asia. And then after conquering Tyre, uh, which is further down the coast, he completely razed the city, selling the women and children to slavery, killing any military-aged man. Charming. Uh, yeah. And then he rode through, through Egypt, to the Egyptian city of Gaza, where there was another siege. He executed all, all men of military age again and sold the women and children to slavery again. He then came back on himself, capturing a northern part of Iraq, which was Mesopotamia, um, defeating King Darius, who was the last king of the uh, Achaemenid Empire. And he conquered Babylon, Susa, and then finally Persopolis. And although he let his troops loot the city, he did actually end up staying in Persopolis for five months until a fire burnt down the entire ceremonial capital. So Alexander and his men then pursued Darius on a sort of chase across um, across Asia Minor, across the Middle East and uh, towards modern-day Pakistan. Until finally surrounded, he was captured and kidnapped by his own men, including a leader called Bessus, and he was then killed by, uh, by this leader as Alexander approached. Um, Bessus then claimed the throne and retreated further into Asia in, in order to fight a guerrilla war against Alexander, but... Alexander. But most people regard the death of Darius as the collapse of the empire, so he did finally defeat the empire. 
and he gave Darius a full royal funeral, which was his attempt to symbolise that his conquest was not so much conquering, but a merging of two cultures, and not the destruction of one by another. I love when you merge with a culture and kill all of the military-age men and sell the women and children into slavery. Don't you love cultural <laughs> exchange and interaction? So, um, yeah, I mean, quite. This is, this is um, propaganda on his part. Here's a question that I have to ask now, though. What did Alexander look like? Are there depictions of him? There are depictions of him. Um, he was... Uh, Supposedly very physically charismatic. Um, because you know where I'm going with this. I don't think he was an evil twink energy. Okay. I think, as you'll find out more about his relationships further on, Whitney is a good uh, a good model here. This is some deep Whitney energy. Deep Whitney energy. Yeah. Okay. There's like a passion for success, um, deep attachments, dangerous relationships. But I don't think he is this corrupting twink. We can't know what he looks like. But. Okay. Anyway, um, so he gave this big funeral to Darius, a full royal funeral, so he could see himself as the heir. And then when they caught Bessus, the guy who'd killed Darius, they actually just executed him like a common criminal. Um, anyway, back in Macedon, the economy was really booming as Alexander was returning all this wealth, all this loot to his, uh, from his empire back to his home. And that really boosts trade. But actually, at the same time, he was draining all the manpower of the Macedons in order to keep his army going, which would have serious consequences later on. Um, there's actually this, this anecdote about him then crossing the desert into Pakistan and he'd taken the, the courtiers, the eunuchs, who were the entertainers and um, uh, court staff of, of Darius and taken them on himself, including uh, a favourite called Bagoas, who was a eunuch. And Plutarch writes, quote, We are told, too, that he was once viewing some contests in singing and dancing, being well heated with wine, and that his favourite, Bagoas, won the prize for song and dance, and then, in all his festal array, passed through the theatre and took his seat by Alexander's side, at sight of which the Macedonians clapped their hands and loudly bade the king kiss the victor, until at last he threw his arms around him and kissed him tenderly. Hmm. So over the next few years, Alexander continued in this campaign uh, through towards what is now modern-day India. By 1829, he'd reached Kabul, and he was assisted by a, a series of strategic alliances with um, with local groups. He there, then conquered north of Kabul up to modern-day Kazakhstan, before pushing back through to the Indus River in India. And at the stronghold of Masaga, he was seriously wounded in the ankle, um, and so after taking the city, he completely destroyed it. Having captured much of Kashmir, his army then continued uh, right through to the Indus and what was then called the Hyphasis River, which today is um, the Bayas River in, in India. But exhausted by years of ceaseless fighting, at this point they'd been on campaign for I think seven or eight years, um, his troops revolted. And... By this time, Alexander's empire was absolutely colossal. It ran from the Adriatic in the west to the Punjab in the east, and from modern-day Kazakhstan in the north to the south of modern-day Egypt. So, so basically, large amounts of um, of the Middle East, large amounts of uh, Asia Minor reaching right through to the Indian subcontinent. So, uh, yeah, the troops started to mutiny, and... Um, but he wasn't defeated. He managed to sort of persuade them not to overthrow him. 
He even sent out a fleet to start exploring the coastline of his new empire, and then he started to march his army southwards, conquering uh, some Indian groups as he went, and then went back towards Greece. On his way back, he... Um, on his way back towards Susa, which you know, he, he conquered early in his career, he found that many of the governors had left and been invo- he'd left had been involved in corruption, and so he just was executing them as he go as he goes. You know, he was still really keen on controlling his empire as an administrative force. He also forgave the debts of his soldiers, um, and he sent the retired ones and the disabled ones back home to Macedon. But there was a confusion over this order, and that, that instigated another mutiny. Um, he managed to talk them down again, and they held a hu- he held a huge feast for their for his men in their honor. Um, and the men asked for his forgiveness. Everything was fine. Uh, and then, because Alexander has this thing about merging the courts, he understood the power of pro- the propaganda power of this cultural uh, this cultural exchange, as it were, and also of the bonding power of marriages between cultures. In Susa, he arranged a mass wedding of himself and all his officers. I think about one hundred and fifty men to the do- all the daughters of the, per- uh, the Persian aristocracy. And he himself married Darius's daughter, who was called Statiera. Um, who, she was thrilled. Yeah. Who was his second wife, while his bodyguard slash boyfriend, Hephaestion, married his, no, her sister, Darius's other daughter, thus making Alexander and Hephaestion brothers-in-law. Um... Yeah. Yeah. Hardly a love match. <laughs> but it would have made his mother happy. Um, Curtius, or, yeah, Curtius, who was a writer at the time, uh, wrote of Alexander, quote, He scorned sensual pleasures to such an extent that his mother was anxious lest he, lest he be unable to beget offspring. Mm. We all know that story. Yeah. When are you going to find a nice woman to marry, settle down with and marry? However, um, as they were heading back to um, Ekbatana, the unthinkable happened, and Hephaestion, who was still a young man at this time, probably a year or two younger than Alexander, although we don't know, um, he fell sick and he died. And Alexander was totally inconsolable. He cried for days without eating. He planned an enormous funeral pyre for his lover in Babylon. I saw something online which suggested it was would have cost in modern-day money $1.5 billion dollars. Which seems like a lot, so I'm saying that in um, with, you know, a pinch of salt. But it gives some suggestion. It was said to be, uh, I think, about 100 feet high Jesus and Christ. covered in model ships. Anyway, Boats. he decreed public mourning, and really, this this was a complete crisis for him. Uh, his health started to suffer. Um, back in Babylon, he put his, um, his grief into planning another military campaign. He wanted to push south into Arabia. But he himself fell sick shortly after, and he died just a few months after uh, Hephaestion. Um, Here's actually a quote from Alexander himself. Sex and sleep alone make me conscious that I am mortal. Anyway, his body was placed into a sarcophagus that was then filled with honey, which was then itself placed into a gold casket, and it was returned to Macedon, where he was uh, placed in his tomb. However, the location of his tomb is now lost. It's actually the subject of considerable sort of modern political intrigue between uh, Macedonia and Greece regarding his legacy and who can claim it. Anyway, lacking his leadership, the empire splintered in a few generations. It couldn't really get over the manpower issues of the amount of people who were lost in his campaigns. And eventually it was subsumed into what was the burgeoning Roman Empire. 
And I just wanted to finish on one last quote from a historian called Ernst Badian, um, which I think is really sums up um, Alexander's deep Whitney energy. After fighting, scheming and murdering in pursuit of his, the secure tenure of absolute power, he found himself at last on a lonely pinnacle over an abyss, with no use for his power and security unattainable. His genius was such that he ended an epoch and began another, but one of unceasing war and misery, from which exhaustion produced an approach to order after two generations and peace at last under the Roman Empire. He himself never found peace. One is tempted to see him in medieval terms as the man who sold his soul to the devil for power. The devil kept his part of the bargain, but ultimately claimed his own. But to the historian, prosaically such allegory, we must put it dif differently. To him, when he has done all the work, work that must be done and done carefully, of analysing the play and faction and syst the system of government, Alexander illustrates with startling clarity the ultimate loneliness of supreme power. So we've been totally overwhelmed by the success of the show so far. Thank you so much to all of you for listening, but a big special thank you goes out to all of our Patreon donors. Yeah, so far you've funded a second season and an ongoing series of special episodes, and you've really helped us to improve our audio quality. But there is a lot more that we'd like to do, uh, and we're not sponsored by anyone. We're not backed by any media company. We make the show for you, hopefully soon with more episodes, more interviews, and you let us know that you appreciate the show by giving what you can. So now's the time we awkwardly ask for money. So, to support the show, visit patreon.com slash badgazepod to sign up. We send you newsletters, zines, novels, and more, depending on your level of support. Anything you can give is really appreciated, and if money's tight, a good review on iTunes or on your podcast app really, really helps us find new audiences. Thanks. That's patreon.com slash badgazepod. Thanks. Well, that's a hell of a story, Hugh. Um, I think... My first question for you has to do with um, the reception of Alexander the Great and kind of how this story has been told and retold and what kinds of people have taken their, uh, taken inspiration uh, from it. Um, do you want to sort of speak to that a bit? Yeah. I mean, I think maybe what you're suggesting here is the way that he was sort of um, reclaimed in the 19th century by gay men who were trying to re-examine their history and trying to find examples throughout history. And the Greeks, generally the Athenians in this pederastic model of um, same-sex relationships, became a real focus for in the in uh, Europe and in America for this um, this idea of an ideal form of love between men. Mm -hmm. Right, and then also being able to associate yourself if you're in a situation where, um, you know, this new figure of the homosexual has been created, and that figure is sort of effeminized, to be able to say, no, not only are we not effeminate, we're like this person who conquered half of Asia, um, right? Yeah, has obvious kind of power and relevance. And then what's also interesting is that then that connects that kind of developing association of Alexander the Great as this kind of first-generation canonical gay figure to this other vision of Alexander the Great, where he's one of the first, if I'm getting this wrong, correct me, but he's one of the first people from whatever we would now call European civilization or Western civilization who makes significant conquests in Asia. And so then he also becomes this kind of model for um, colonial domination and a kind of model for 
the divine right of European civilization, this thing that in idea comes out of the ancient Greeks and this kind of unceasing flow of whatever the hell people who think Western civilization is important think it means, um, that, the, you know, the right of that to rule over, um, over the rest and over others. And so then those two things actually, in a weird way, get sort of tied together very early. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's two strands there. There's one of this 19th century reclamation by gay men of him as a figure who was strong, successful, uh, who wasn't feminized, quote unquote, um, who could yeah, per- perform this literally platonic form of love as, as Plato was sort of discussing it in terms of the this male-male desire. Um, and yet at the same time, those those ideas that they were developing in the 19th century were happening, were coterminous with other ideas of racialization, uh, for example, and colonialism uh, that we talked about in the last series. And also you can see in him this thoroughly masculinist approach coming out as well, you know, that he, in, <clears throat> in the same way that you had these military figures who believed that fighters, soldiers were stronger without the presence of women, that this, this idea that it comes from the sacred band of thieves, Thebes, that um, the male couples fighting together will fight harder and more ferociously because they're fighting for love and for the love of their compatriots at the same time, which really underpins a lot of masculinist discourse around um, around homosexuality in the twentieth century. Absolutely, and folks like uh, Raymond Friedländer from the from the first season come to mind when thinking about people who really take who take this stuff very very seriously. Um, when in the historiography, because you've looked at a really wide variety of sources for uh, researching this, does the, I think, pretty obvious love and romantic relationship with uh, Hephaestion, when does that kind of enter into or be, become sort of generally acknowledged? Does it happen early in this kind of oh, it's this, like, strange vice of the Greeks kind of a way, or is it, are there attempts to kind of either cover it up or to kind of uh, recover Alexander as a straight figure or emphasize the wives or something like that? Well, I think it's actually quite complicated because in in this sort of English tradition, like you say, this uh, vice of the Greeks, which is a way that people who, who sort of idealized and romanticized um, Greek society in the sort of 17th, 18th, and 19th century regarded this as their strange idiosyncrasy that you have to overlook or let go <clears throat> but that when they're talking about the vice of the greeks they do normally refer to it they are normally referring to this pederastria model mm-hmm. uh, whereas alexander stands apart from that now part of the problem is it's very hard to make any claims in terms of him being a homosexual having this homosexual relationship with with Hephaestion, right? Well, yeah, because the word doesn't make any sense. I mean, as we've said earlier, it's, you know, we're, uh, the reason why we would include someone like Alexander on a podcast called Bad Gays is because of his reception history, not because of anything anything you can say about him. Although I guess if you're really getting into the philosophy of history, there's nothing you can say about anybody. All you're talking about is the reception history. But... Yeah, but the thing is, like, when we're talking about Greek culture, like, there, there were male-male relationships, but they weren't conceptualized in terms of, in terms of... I mean, they they did have a concept of gender, and it woke, the framework was gender, but it was this this thing of education that was part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I love learning, don't you? <laughs> um, <laughs> you? But this, yeah, this idea of this older, younger dynamic um, with these sort of 
boys, basically, you know, that the 15 to 17 year old boys are generally the age that they join these relationships. Um, <clears throat> and so they have their own words for this, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, as we're discussing. Um, so, but what's confusing, I think, for people who were talking about the vice of the Greeks is you can't actually necessarily apply that to Alexander either, because he did seem to have the suggestion of, um, of a same-sex relationship with Hephaestion, which was was noted at the time. Um, for example, the, there was a lot of sort of discussion in in, um, in some of the documents around the fact that Hephaestion was said to have slept in Alexander's tent overnight, which was a key thing. Hmm. So, and they, they clearly saw that as something worth noting as um, as an issue, I guess. Well, and I you do, of course, just close friends. <laughs> yeah, they're just cuddling to keep warm. <laughs> but no, of course, like then, then, um, then there's this issue uh, on those terms, which is that the Athenians and the Macedons also saw sexuality very differently, and so he and he was coming from this different Macedon background, but he did have Aristotle as his teacher. So, um, yeah, it's very it's very very complex to see. But it, certainly at the time, it was noted that he did, he did have an unusually intimate relationship with Hephaestion, whether that was a prolonged sexual relationship, whether that was a short sexual relationship that turned into a trusting friendship with his commanders. Um, and then that was then reclaimed, yeah, mainly in the 19th century by explicitly as a, as a campaign by gay men, I think, to to highlight this form of relationship. Right, and, and to find something that wasn't pederasty, I mean, pretty explicitly, you know, to find something that maybe, because there's, you know, you can imagine if... Uh, if you're trying to find a name for something that that looks different from um, or that you experience differently from a kind of short-term relationship of youth that isn't about identity, but if you're trying to actually make kind of identitarian claim, then having this person who has this longer-term relationship um, that isn't on that model then becomes useful for various reasons. Yeah. And there are lots of interesting ways that this uh, shines a light on Greek society in general in terms of sexuality. For example, in those pederastic relationships, um, consent and nobility of the younger partner was key. I mean, we can talk about consent in different terms. You know, this is <clears throat> a different society, and these were these were men who would be unable to give consent, consent today. But in Greek society, that's what that was what they believed. Right. Also, people live much less long, um, and for that and many other reasons, 15 to 17 has a very different social meaning than it does here now. Sure. I mean, if I was Alexander the Great, I'd already be dead. I'm only 33. You know? How old is he when he died? 32. Oof. Yeah. 10 years it took him to conquer most of the known world. Well? Known to him. We obviously. have some catching up to do. Yeah. Um, but then... There's a, so so while that has this consensual relationship, uh, then but but um, sexual relationships with wives doesn't have that same issue of consent because they're not regarded as being able to give consent, and also sexual relations with um, pornos, which is the Greek for prostitute, and also with slaves doesn't come into it, you know. So there's these class these class elements there, right? Because the and gender, the citizen, the sovereign subject is the landholding man. Yeah, um, and that's it made done in this very explicit way. Well, I think it's time for our first verdict of the second season. Alexander the Great, bad gay or not bad gay? Well, 
he had some interesting uh, ideas regarding uh, his own sexual ethics. Um, he was said to be very ethic- ethical sexually. So as a gay, maybe good. In general, uh, a genocidal, murdering, co- conquering imperialist, um, narcissist, whatever you've got, we can add to the, the list of the rap list, you know. Who has been basically entirely historically whitewashed into this uh, hero of Western masculinity, which is good and not at all fucked up. And not even necessarily good on his own terms or on the terms of the people who like him. Yes, he conquered this huge empire for 10 years, but he didn't really leave any particular lasting infrastructure and able to sustain that because his lust to conquer was uh, far more than his ability to manage what he had conquered. I think W.H. Auden said something about that, about uh, gay men who conducted their erotic lives like the invasion of Poland. Um, Well, that seems like a good place to end it. It does. So uh, if people want to learn more about Alexander the Great or find out uh, about some of the sources that you use to research this show, Hugh, where should they go? Well, as I mentioned at the start, Plutarch, who was a near-contemporary, wrote The Life of Alexander. He was a a Greco-Roman biographer. So a lot of the uh, first-hand sources go back to Plutarch. But on top of that, there is, for example, Erd Spadian, who wrote Alexander the Great and the Loneliness of Power. And then the one that really tends to go more into his sexuality in probably a more open way is Alexander the Great by Robin Lane Fox. Fabulous. Well... Thank you so much, uh, Hugh, for that wonderful story. And join us next week for more Bad Gays. Thanks so much for listening to the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy, or you can subscribe to my newsletter, which is at hugh.substack.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Ben Writes Things. And you can follow the show at Bad Gays Pod. If you liked what you heard, please visit patreon.com slash badgazepod to donate, and or you can leave us a review on iTunes or your podcast provider to help us grow our audience. Thanks so much. See you next week. Bad. 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 Bad.